0: listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Chris, what is happening? Welcome back to Barcode. Hey, man, what's going on? <sighs> Not much, man. I gotta tell you, though, I was having trouble getting into the bar because my key wouldn't let me in the front door. You won't believe it. The owner, Dude he change the locks on me? I call him up, give me a new key. After that, uh, now here I am. Well, I'm glad you made it in. What are you mixing up today? Ah, one of my favorites. Got a Sapphire Alpine. Man, that sounds expensive. No, 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 not at all. You just use one ounce of your favorite gin, one ounce of blue curacao, one ounce of peach schnapps. Shake that puppy into mice, pour it in a chill glass. Down, old mite Welcome to Barcode. Today I have Stan Ivanov, who is a software engineering manager for SEV1, which is a leading network management platform. He is also well-versed in computer security and cryptography and a big fan of data science. In addition, he is a true entrepreneur and has recently developed Secure My Files, which is a solution that helps businesses secure highly sensitive files locally and in the cloud using client-side encryption. And what I just learned about Stan, and I've known him for many years, is that he plays the flamenco guitar.
1: Yeah, flamenco
0: guitar. Cool, man. Well, next time you're on, you'll have to bring it and show us your skills.
1: Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Um, This is my passion.
0: Awesome. Stan, welcome to the show. Can you tell us how long you've been coding and developing and how did you first get into it?
1: Sure, Chris. I'm from Bulgaria originally in Eastern Europe. So uh, I got my first computer when I was 14 and it, I literally stopped playing video games a year later and got into coding. Back in the day, we used to do a lot of, you know, all kinds of different hacking challenges too. There are there, these little crack for reverse engineering of uh, different protection schemes for software. And we as kids, of course, we got onto it. It was a challenge. So I did a lot of those crack me's, debugging software under Windows, trying to break it, trying to see how it works. Um, Started with learning C in 21 days. That was my first book I read on development. And I had to print it on a matrix printer. And it took probably two weeks to print it page by page because each page took like five minutes to print. So it was an interesting experience. You know, I printed it, I read it. Uh, English was a little spotty then, but if you have desire, you can do it. And since then I came to the States, studied uh, computer forensics and computer security, uh, but really got into software engineering after school. And I have been developing ever since
0: in all kinds of technologies. So would you say your passion is more cybersecurity or more on the development side? Security. Security for
1: sure. Since a long time ago, since I was a kid. So since I was in my teenage years, I used to write all kinds of different tools and applications, playing around with, uh, you know, as a hobby with all kinds of different networking tools, understanding how networks work. Got many different viruses infecting my computer, trying to clean them up. I remember as a kid. And and that got me, of course, into reading the books, Hacking Exposed. Oh, yeah. That got me started. Here in the States, I've done a lot of uh, computer forensics. That that was interesting to kind of an intersection between law and, and technology. I led a couple of investigations into some interesting cases. In my early years, I worked for a digital legislation firm. It was a very interesting experience. But, you know, coding is so much fun and it opened so many other doors. So now with secure my files with the company I started, it brought everything together. My fashion, my my coding skills, it was just a great time and an opportunity.
0: So I'd say you're the anomaly as security still remains an afterthought in DevOps for many organizations. I imagine that the knowledge and understanding you already had gave you an edge at the time in securing code over other developers.
1: Yeah. I mean, even, even now I, I work with a lot of very, very smart people and very smart developers with 10, 20, 30 years of experience. And they still don't understand uh, the, the security concepts behind safe development, secure coding standards And this is really disappointing, and this is the state of the industry right now, is it's so hard to get things off the ground running and working. Security is always an afterthought. It's really complex, and it requires a lot more time and dedication to to build something secure than to build something insecure. Another byproduct of that is the end consumer or business or small business doesn't care about security enough also have deadlines so at the end of the day security is just very weird thing and right now we see that the government had to be involved with all these regulations i i think if the government didn't get involved security would not even exist you know it's driven by the military you know the military is the the biggest pusher in and set in terms of of research in the security field military is Thanks to the, you know, Department of Defense and all their disclassification of different algorithms, we have a lot to learn from them. They say the NSA is probably the most well-versed cryptographic organization in the world, employing hundreds of mathematicians, PhDs, developing who knows what, breaking who knows what. It's just phenomenal. But after that, it comes with, you know, part of the financial sector was a big user of, of security. They they were pushing forward. And then everything else followed through that, you know, early banking, online banking was where probably security got a big boost in the public or private sector, you know. For sure. But cryptography was, was kind of a weird field. I think Bruce Schneier's applied Cryptography book, I don't know how old it is, maybe in the 1990s is when it came out. This really opened the door of cryptography and math to so many other people. Like uh, hobbyists and enthusiasts, you know, amateur amateur coders, and now the, this this cryptographic and security toolkit could be used by so many other people. But I am extremely passionate about cryptography itself, and we can talk about the history of it for a long time. But I think it's it's just really cool. From the early other- point, when it was it was uh, actually thought illegal by the U.S. government. Cryptographic software was considered a weapon; it was weaponized. So, you, it was absolutely illegal to export cryptographic software from the United States to, you know, the proliferation of cryptographic software today. And then we go back three hundred and sixty degrees, where everybody wants to have quote unquote backdoor in the cryptography, and the government wants to be able to control everything. It's kind of an interesting um, yeah. consideration there, but. Right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what is the risk you see to unencrypted data?
1: I think cryptography now is absolutely necessary. It plays a part in the securing of data. And unfortunately, it's not the only part because cryptography actually is easy. If you look at it, it's pure math. But security is so much more than math. And security is also psychology. It's also politics. It's also convenience. So uh, when you put it all together, sometimes actually cryptography stands against convenience. I don't want to remember passwords, or I forgot my password, or why do I need to change my password all the time? So cryptographically, you can have perfectly secure system, but when users and, and different assumptions come into play, you know, things start to break. So I think... As a scientific community, we're we're not still yet sure how to best engineer secure systems, but we know for sure that cryptography plays a, mix, is a super important kind of role in, in the securing of systems. All communications today over the internet happen over HTTPS, and or if they if they don't, they should be. The HTTPS is the secure uh, HTTP protocol over TLS link. This is the the de facto standard. Everybody should g- just be using that going forward. So, cryptography now is part of everybody's lives from online banking to playing video games to watching videos on YouTube, uh, Googling, everything now is HTTPS. Cryptography is everywhere, I think.
0: Definitely, man. So, I need you to explain something to me. Quantum cryptography. What is it, and when do you use it?
1: Sure. So, quantum cryptography is interesting. So with the research done in quantum computers, there was a big scare that quantum computers are so efficient and so different than regular computing that they would be able to solve some very hard cryptographic challenges much faster than, than the regular computers we have today, basically meaning they can break cryptography. And this means that whoever gets to the quantum computing first whichever nation or whichever company, there's a lot of damage that, that can occur in society. So as such, uh, people are worried that if we do have a hypothetical or real quantum computer, it can go ahead and break modern cryptography into a cer- certain extent. So that actually created an interesting field of study in, in cryptography, which is quantum Resistant algorithms for encryption, uh, quantum resistant cryptography. And uh, there's already proposed algorithms for, for quantum resistant uh, cryptography, such as the Shor Shor algorithm. That you can read it in on the Wikipedia page. But actually, Microsoft, I think, their team developed a open SSL alternative, if I'm not mistaken, completely using quantum resilient. Crypto algorithms. So we already understand the danger of uh, quantum computers, and there's already many researchers helping to fix uh, some of the algorithms that we have. Specifically, the most used one are are RSA. You know, this is the public-private key encryption algorithm that drives the internet and the world today. They're at the biggest risk from quantum computers. You know, we see we see now a lot of research around that. Maybe moving to elliptic curve cryptography can be one way of uh, solving this, but there's plenty of research around it. And the biggest care from quantum computers is whoever gets to it first might be able to decrypt, you know, sensitive traffic and this is not good.
0: So therefore making cryptography irrelevant.
1: It, it It breaks the purpose of cryptography.
0: Cryptocurrency is said to be the next evolution of money. What do you know about cryptocurrency? Have you ever invested in cryptocurrency?
1: No, I I am fascinated by cryptocurrencies. I know about them, but I do not invest. Maybe that was a bad mistake. I should have.
0: Yeah, you and me
1: both. I did, however, mine a uh, a couple of different coins, but I wasn't successful in getting a coin, so... At this point, I'm just interested in the idea. I'm very interested in in the blockchain technology that is coming out of cryptocurrencies because it has other implications. Um, I was involved with a Department of Defense proposal for creating a technology on top of blockchain to secure sensitive research documentation. The Department of Defense does. I'm somewhat familiar with the field, but it's kind of complex, and it's very early on to say that it can have any other practical applications besides, you know, cryptocurrencies or some other kind of niche things. There, there's many, it actually cryptocurrencies are interesting because it's the first full-blown application of blockchain. And we are missing a couple pieces of science there, but if we do figure it out, blockchain can become a revolutionary technology for, for anything that has a middleman. So the, beauty, the beautiful thing about blockchain is it removes the middlemen. It can negotiate contracts between two parties without the need of a bank, without the need uh, of an intermediary. And just imagine we have so many middlemen everywhere. They're making money. So the cost savings will be gigantic for the society.
0: So I read an article the other day that the IRS announced a bounty of up to six hundred and twenty-five k to anyone who can crack Monero's privacy. And Monero, by the way, is the preferred method of payment amongst cyber criminals because Bitcoin is said to be more traceable.
1: No, it's, it's interesting. Well, where, it's funny that you mentioned Monero. You know, cryptocurrency now are, uh, are involved into, unfortunately, into something that created a huge new industry for the bad guys, and that's ransomware. So uh, actually, ransomware is, is one way because cryptocurrencies are now anonymous payment methods you can pay. But the second interesting kind of side effect of cryptocurrency is there are viruses that the, the only purpose is to install a crypto miner on your computer so that you, your computer can be used for mining. There is nothing nefarious besides using your electrical power. And actually, Monero is one of the top mined currencies, cryptocurrencies by those uh, crypto miners, viruses that that are everywhere. So imagine your data center gets hit by a crypto miner virus. All your servers are now happily making someone rich somewhere across the world. It's beautiful, beautiful. And, uh, you know, this, so from one side, cryptocurrencies created this awesome incentive for hackers to continue to develop, crypto viruses, crypto minor viruses, which is great. And on the other hand, it allowed the creation of ransomware so that you can pay anonymously. And, you know, because ransomware is so powerful and it can make so much money for everybody, it will be here to stay. And uh, it will be a huge problem to the whole industry, I think, and the whole world in general.
0: No, I think you're 100% right. And not only is it here to stay, it's becoming harder to detect and attackers are becoming more clever with the techniques they use to deliver ransomware. In regards to mining cryptocurrency, you have personal experience with doing this. I understand that it takes an extreme amount of processing power to mine just one Bitcoin. Would you mind explaining the process?
1: Sure. Well, uh, I'm not certain that all cryptocurrencies work the same, but I can talk about Bitcoin. And uh, let's say, hypothetically, we can extrapolate to Ethereum and Monero. But Bitcoin actually uses a special process uh, where, where you iterate over hashing. So you're, you're hashing a bunch of numbers together until a special event occurs. So only when that special event occurs, it is considered that you have mined a Let's say Bitcoin, or you have mined, uh, yeah, or Monero or Ethereum. So you're hashing, you're using this SHA 256 hash. You can basically use any hash you want. And the interesting part of the cryptocurrency technology is that they can dynamically increase the number of hashes you need to perform in order to mine one cryptocurrency. So as more and more cryptocurrencies are mined, the hash problem is increased and becomes harder and harder. And you need a lot more CPU cycles to continue to hash in order to mine more cryptocurrencies. So at the end, there is a finite number of cryptocurrencies that will be mined. This is by the Bitcoin uh, standard. I think Satoshi Nakamoto, he was the inventor. I think the beautiful system was that he, he said that there will be a very defined amount of Bitcoins available to mine. And as we reach this number, the hardness of hashing will increase so that a lot more computers need to be involved in order to mine the next uh, Bitcoin. So the big problem of of Bitcoin mining is this SHA-256 hashing. And it was realized pretty early as Bitcoin was gaining popularity that SHA-256 hashing can be optimized and should be optimized if you want to mine a lot of Bitcoins. So what happened was people started using server farms, just mining SHA-256 hashes. Uh, They started using their graphical GPUs. They will program them in different ways. They'll start doing uh, SHA-256 bit hashing. But actually there is even faster ways uh, using FPGAs or ASICs, you know, custom boards that has custom designed processors and hardware. That I guess the industry term is they cut through SHA two fifty six like butter. They are just phenomenally fast. And uh, but but the beautiful design concept of of Bitcoin is that no matter how fast your hardware is, the SHA two fifty six bit hashing. Is constantly uh, slowed down by every participant in the network by increasing the difficultness of the sha 256 bit hashes, which means that no matter how much fast hardware you have, the the hardness grows exponentially. So at some point, even the the fastest computer would not be able to solve, uh, you know, mine bitcoins in time, which is today. So what we see today. Is actually takes more energy, more power, in terms of dollars, to mine a bitcoin than the the amount it's worth. So what a lot of people have done is they have moved to states such as I don't know Alabama, I think was one of them, where electricity is really cheap, so they can build their farming, uh, you know, mining farms there and trying to uh, mine bitcoins. It's a phenomenal story, I think.
0: But each computer, I assume, that they're infecting is only performing part of that process. When you look at these attackers, they don't necessarily zero in on one supercomputer. When they drop these crypto miners, each PC is essentially just a machine on the assembly line, then.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is by definition the idea behind distributed mining of, of cryptocurrencies. Some of the Crypto miners are really, are really advanced. They can detect if the computer is in use and actually stop mining altogether. So the user never detects the miner, you know, and if they detect the computer is not in use, they'll start mining. So this way, when you use your computer, you have no idea that the miners are running, but you know, as soon as you go idle or uh, you know, it goes to sleep, it can be cranking in the background. And uh, some people make uh, made a lot of money from crypto miners, and they're very benign, in the term that they don't cause any harm, rather than a bigger electricity bill for you. An- another implication of uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies was there was an initiative. I think they killed it, where you can instead of watching ads to see online content, instead of at watching. Uh, a short little advertisement or video or have a banner or whatever, as you go to sites that need money, your browser can start mining in the background a little bit as you're reading through the article or as you're you know consuming that content of the website. And they're making money by making you and your browser mine cryptocurrency for them. So that was a beautiful system because, you know, instead of you being bombarded by these, advertisements that are really obnoxious. You can now go into a website. They can ask you, hey, do you mind if we mine some Bitcoin in your browser as you're watching and, you know, looking around? You can say, yeah, sure, no problem. So this was kind of an interesting change in maybe how content will be consumed and paid in the future. You know, I would definitely prefer my browser to mine some Bitcoin for a company than to watch some obnoxious videos. Uh, But I think this initiative kind of, I think it was abused. A lot of uh, viruses started to exist where all kinds of users were, browsers were starting to mine and not uh, really used for like good purposes or mostly used for bad purposes. It was kind of an interesting breakdown of, of the whole concept, but I think it's here to stay. I think the Brave browser, which is a very security conscious browser, They use some sort of a, they have a connection with the cryptocurrency. I think you could use it to, to do some things. I'm not really familiar with with, with them and how they operate, but uh, it's an interesting thing. Also, there is another project called the interplanetary file system. It's really cool. You can buy storage there with currencies that they all have. have their own currency, I think. And you can buy and sell storage in there. So you can say, Hey, here's five gigabytes. Of data, I'm donating to the from my hard disk, donating to the interplanetary file system. Anybody can store anything, uh, and you get some bit some cryptocurrencies for that storage. You can buy others, other storage. So it's kind of an interesting, a lot of different kind of things are crawling out of the cryptocurrency world.
0: Yeah, and to see cryptocurrency sort of emerge from the darkness and negative publicity that is typically related to dark web transactions and be utilized in a positive way is definitely moving in the right direction. Although, how far can it go, right? Can it make it to PayPal, Venmo level? Or do you see this progressing to mainstream at all?
1: No, I don't think it's going to be a mainstream currency anytime soon. And I mean, it has to go. In order for it to be really accepted as a mainstream currency, I think the world governments need to accept it at least the U S government needs to accept it. And, uh, there are so much complications around that fact. Uh, but you know, as a, as a hobbyist currency, it's already uh, pretty popular. And, uh, there is even cryptocurrencies, ATMs here in Philadelphia or I think all over the U S in the world, you can go and you can get some of your crypto, uh, bitcoins out for cash, the cryptocurrency, the, Actual ATM can give you cash for Bitcoins or whatever. So it's, it's kind of an interesting development. But there's a huge benefit of having Bitcoin. And that's you don't need a, a central authority to monitor the transaction. So you have anonymity. And also you don't need extra authority to impose taxes and fees on processing your transaction. Again, you're saving a lot of money. And the world banking system will obviously want to stop that. It's not in their best interest. But also, you as a user, let's say you're you're dealing with me and you don't know me, and you have to pay me online, and you pay me with Bitcoin. Well, you have to understand that Bitcoin is not like cash. If I don't do anything to give you back, let's say I'm selling a laptop, a laptop yeah. on eBay, and eBay allows Bitcoins to be paid. If I sell you that laptop and you pay me the money. I can be out and gone, and there is no way for you to get your money back. So having a central authority that watches your best interests sometimes is important because it's like cash. If I give you cash and you run away with my cash, there is no way for me to get it back. Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies are like cash. So we need a, a new set of intermediary companies that are going to help us facilitate trade and and security and protect us because right now is the wild west. Everybody's scamming everybody. We'll need to wait and see where, where this goes.
0: For sure. So I want to switch it up to SMF or secure my files because this is a solution you developed yourself to help protect data in the cloud. Could you talk about the product itself and talk about what really sparked the idea.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, Secure my files is a it was a hobby project that turned into a startup uh, that was really an interesting adventure in my life, and it continues to be actually. So I was I remember I was uh, using Google and I paid for their online storage, which was um, I think they had Google Drive back then, and I needed one terabyte to hold my backups there. And at some point I was like, you know what, I'm going to put all this information in Google, but this is not really secure. I don't want Google to know everything uh, about my personal life. They already know enough. And this is the time, you know, when when I was really getting on with with the big corporations that, that are following us from a privacy concern, from a security concern. And I was like, you know, I want to use Google as as little as possible. I want to use Facebook as little as possible, all the other kind of big corporations that follow us and and invade our privacy. And also for my personal safety, I don't want people to be able to break into my account and and look at my personal files or my sensitive documents. So I started to play around with the idea. Back in the day, there weren't really that many alternatives for encryption of the files as you place them on the the cloud. Um, There was no easier or transparent, user workflow. So this is when I was like, hey, listen, you know, we can combine a lot of different technologies and potentially make this extremely easy to use and extremely Mm -hmm. simple, yet deliver tremendous value by encrypting sensitive files and storing them on Google Drive. Um, And this is what sparked it. It was kind of my, my desire to keep my life protected and to keep my personal files protected beyond the praying eyes of the big corporations. But this evolved into there's so much benefit for keeping your files protected. Now, you know, Secure My Files is a tool tar- that that's targeting uh, companies and organizations that are afraid of the cloud and they do want to move to the cloud, but, you know, they're worried based mm-hmm. or because of regulatory compliance or some other reason, they don't feel comfortable with putting, let's say, uh, personal health records our personal, personal identifying information on the cloud. It's like impossible for them to, to really buy the, the regulation, but with an encryption, they're very careful and strict process. You can definitely do that. And I see a future into this. You know, the cloud is here to stay. Cloud storage is, is extremely convenient. And it's only a matter of time for uh, basically all the data of all of us to, to reside in the, in the cloud. So now is the time for us to think about the privacy implications of our data being on the cloud, are the security implications, and do the right thing and create infrastructure for, for that data to be safe, safe and protected. This is basically kind of the general area of research that uh, Secure Monkey and, and I have been doing for the past four years.
0: And security monkey is the name of the company. Secure my files is the name of the product.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Security monkey, Uh, secure monkey. I I like monkeys, you know, I'm a big fan of primates and security. Why not use that name?
0: I don't think I ever got the meaning behind the name. So it was good to know that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, There's no meaning. It's just a passion of biology, I guess.
0: Throughout the development process of secure my files, although you had a coding background and you had programming experience outside of the technology piece, what would you say were the biggest barriers and constraints that you encountered
1: well, from the business standpoint? I mean, from a business standpoint, they're the same thing as every startup. It's, uh, it's very difficult to convince big organizations, which are the target of our software to, to go ahead and invest in a small startup. And, uh, the, there is a lot of risk involved, a lot of regulation, regulations involved. So it's very hard to, to penetrate that initial barrier of, Hey, you should trust us. We're using industry standard algorithms. Here they are. we you know, we have so much experience in developing products for end consumers. So it's really easy to use. It's too hard to reach the right people, uh, to show them the, the potential. Because as a startup, when you start developing a product, you don't have it all figured out and you don't have the full software developed, right? In the beginning, you need to find those early pilots, those early adapters that are going to use your product to to solve some, some important problem for them, but they're okay with that product not being fleshed out. So it's hard to find those early adapters Uh, From a business standpoint, this is like probably the biggest challenge. And that was the biggest challenge for us. So so going that route from a business side is finding the early adopters and then convincing them they have something that is worth uh, investing in time and and eventually money and very important money because you can't build a solution or a software or an innovation without some support or investment. And the best investment for a startup is customers paying for their services because, you know, they're valued. This is a great indication you're on the right path.
0: Because you're technical, what other business side hurdles did you have to overcome?
1: I think sales, uh, me as a technologist, sales was the absolutely most difficult thing. Completely not natural. I'm a very honest person, so to, to be able to sell is also to be able to paint there rose a picture about things and you know i probably will always struggle with this that's why there is salesman you know i am not a salesman but you know as as a an entrepreneur the number one thing you have to understand is everything is on your shoulders especially in the early days oh. so selling and developing and marketing every possible hat in the company you have to wear in order to to make this breakthrough of some early adapters and then working with them to refine the product and turn it into a profitable enterprise.
0: What would you advise our cybersecurity professionals that are listening to the show that may have a may just have a concept, potentially the next endpoint solution or UBA product, but they can't code it and come up with a POC? Are there freelance programs? Or anything else out there that these cybersecurity professionals could take advantage of to help with the programmatic challenges?
1: Yeah, I would totally recommend the the video lectures from Y Combinator. Y Car- Combinator is the leading accelerator for the Silicon Valley. YC is very popular. And they have so much valuable content available. I would I would just say if if you're about to start or you're thinking to start a company or work for a product, first of all, make sure you watch these lectures. They're absolutely free, freely available and structured really nicely as an as online college course. It's going to take you some time, maybe a couple of weeks to finish them, and they'll really give you a good idea how to start. This is my first advice. My second advice is don't think about your idea as anything special. And don't think about opening companies and, and incorporating and, and the complexities behind it. Think about it as a little project. You have a little side project. You know, maybe you can convince a buddy of yours or a friend to help you. Uh, play around a little bit. Get it to a point where you can show it to people. Go show it to people, you know. Don't take it seriously until it gets serious. Because this way, this attitude will let you have it. It will let you try more more than one product. Because as soon as you put in your head, no, this is the idea, I'm going to incorporate, I'm going to quit my job, you're rushing too much, too fast. And the reality of the situation is maybe your idea was not that great, or maybe nobody was ready for your idea. You know, business, there is always this, the right time and the right place. So thinking about your entrepreneurial kind of ideas as a little side project, you're going to put, you know, best effort, little hobby, you're going to try it out. Show it to friends, show it to people you like and you trust, show it to some mentors, or, you know, find developers within your own circle, convince them this is really important, a leadership quality to, to inspire people to work with you on a hobby. That's you know, the first step towards you leading a company, you know, convince some of your friends to help you out, tell them how cool it's going to be, sell them on the idea. You know, your friends know you. It's not like selling to random person on the street or a big company. Talk to them, get get to build something fun and then show it around. And if if, if you build really something cool and awesome, then then people should be able to see that. We, I, and as you're trying to pitch this product, there, there's many different barriers for you from a cool little pro- side project that you had to turn it into a business. It's like a, a gigantic effort but to, to start first you know, don't take it too seriously. Give it your best shot. See how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, try something else. A lot of times you, you might end up working on a project that is uh, that was a joke in the beginning, but turned out to be the next billion-dollar company. You know? And if it didn't turn out well, people didn't really like it, it, it's not a big deal. You haven't invested money. You haven't incorporated. You haven't gone through all this other craziness. So for me, that would be my advice is as a little side project.
0: Success doesn't happen overnight. And to be in a community where you have cybersecurity professionals all around you, to be able to get feedback on that is in in arm's reach is is a great thing. So, Stan, I have one more question for you. And you know the name of this program is called Barcode. So I have to ask you, if you were to open a cybersecurity-themed bar, what would the name be and what would the signature drink be called?
1: I mean, maybe something like Monkey Talk. And, uh, I don't know, something around monkeys for sure. And, uh, signature drink, it has to be something involving a chimpanzee, the angry chimpanzee or, you know, the angry baboon, something like that.
0: I like it. It sounds dangerous.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Primitive and dangerous.
0: I appreciate your time, Stan. Thank you for joining and good luck with the Secure My Files venture. If anyone wants to find out more about it, do you have a website?
1: Sure, yeah, um, website is www.secure-monkey.com. And you know, people should should be free to reach out to me uh, for whatever reason, you know, cryptography is my passion. Entrepreneurship is my passion. So if I can help with any way, uh, especially for the young and aspiring people, out there, I, I would love to. This is good. Our community is small enough where we need all the help we can get. So keeping that community alive is really important. And what you're doing now, Chris, with with uh, inviting uh, cybersecurity guests and and talking with them, this is this is great. It will spread out the knowledge. It keep people uh, in a nice community. So uh, thanks for inviting me.
0: No problem. Thanks for coming on and sharing your incredible insight. Take it easy. Be safe. Thanks, Mass. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.